0: There's too much pressure on the bottom line now that we can't be throwing food out um, and so i think you know it's an exciting time for chefs to really look at the whole ingredient and to see how much more they can be utilizing
1: this is the deep in the weeds podcast i'm anthony huckstep it's the summer series of deep in the weeds where we welcome back previous guests to share a few yarns from their lives in food Today, it's an absolute pleasure to have Frankie Cox from Green On back on the show. Frankie, how are you?
0: Hey, Huck. I'm good. How are you?
1: I'm good. You are um, a well-traveled uh, food identity in Australia and um, shared many yarns last time you were on the show. Yeah. Um, I've,
0: I've clocked a few um, international miles, I would say. <laughs> yeah,
1: absolutely. Do, do you have any sort of fun uh, stories that really sort of impacted you on your travels in regards to food?
0: Um, yeah, definitely. I think there was one meal that was probably um, pivotal in being um, receiving hospitality and also being a chef and being exposed to people's different crafts. Um, but so I was in Puglia in Italy and it was my farewell tour um, to that side of the world before moving back to Australia after six years overseas. And so um, I contacted uh, Maria Cannibal, who has um, the Parabere Forum, which is for women in hospitality, an international forum that I had been to a few years prior, and asked her if she knew of any um, good cooking schools in Puglia that I'd love to go and do a cooking class while I'm there. And so she recommended this woman called Maria in Conversano, this tiny little town kind of um, up the top of Puglia, and she has a Michelin-star restaurant and a cooking school. So she put me in touch with her and um, Maria didn't speak any English. And so we're using Google Translate via email. And then the cooking school was closed basically the whole time I was there. And then she said, it's gonna open um, like literally three days before I was leaving Puglia. So I thought I have to go. I was um, traveling with a friend and we were down in Lecce and she had to leave early. So I was like, bugger it. I'm still going to go to this cooking class. I'll figure out, I don't know how I'm going to get there or how it's going to pan out. But Um, We'll see. So then I went up to Polignano Amare and I had a few nights there and um, was trying to figure out how to get across to um, Conversano. So there was like these guys that drive tuk-tuks around the local town and I asked them if they could drive me to Conversano. (laughs) So I took a tuk-tuk, I think it was about 45 minutes, and we were like on the main highway, like going through this arid landscape, rattling the whole way there. And I had found an Airbnb, so I booked that. We get there. We can't find the Airbnb anywhere on these, like, amazing stone cobble streets. No cars could go down them. They were just little laneways. So the tuk-tuk driver was out. He was running up and down every lane on the phone to the host of the Airbnb trying to find them because no one could speak English. And anyway, so I get there and um, they've obviously looked at my Instagram and they think that I'm some famous chef so they're like praising me like so excited that I'm there and um so then they they knew that I was going to do the the cooking class so then they tell me to go to the restaurant and I get there and I meet Maria's son and he spoke a little bit of English um but not a lot and then he was trying to tell me that there was going to be a translator at the cooking class um and so then this woman rocks up and so I'm like, oh, here's the translator. I'm just yabbering away to her in English and she looks at me she's like, no English, <laughs> no English. So I was like, oh, okay. And she was like, come with, like trying to um, uh, show me, like come with her and then she's <laughs> to get in her car. <laughs> I was like, all right, here we go. Uh, I guess I'm strapping in now. So I get in her car and we drive through the countryside and she's pointing all these things out, pointing out fig trees along the way and going, oh, yeah, see, see, see. Um, And then we get to the cooking school and it was below Maria's house um, and it had just recently been kitted out all by KitchenAid. So then um, there was three of us. It was her first cooking class back since it had been um, refurbed. And um, so Marie is this beautiful woman probably um, in her late 60s and she holds, as I said, one Michelin star at the restaurant and um, there was just three of us in the cooking class and the the one girl who was meant to be the translator spoke about 10% English. (laughs) So we had this I, well, it was an amazing experience because obviously cooking is so visual, um, and so it didn't really matter lo- what language was being spoken. And I guess cooking is a universal language, so that was um, amazing just to sit back and and watch and um, see how passionate she was, and all the amazing ingredients you use, like local, beautiful punterelle and uh, beautiful cheeses, and the way she cooked pasta and semolina and things like that. So that was that was, I guess. Um, just a a toe in to see what the next experience is like. So then she invited me to come and have lunch at her restaurant the next day. And, um, so I go in and it's like just the most beautiful room. There's antique things everywhere and there's just, there's so much soul in the space and you can tell there's so much pride. And so I sit down and there's like doilies on the table and, um, all these beautiful old plates and, the meal begins. And I honestly could have cried as soon as it started. I was sitting there by myself. I did the matched wines. And the first course was like 12 little different dishes and all the most beautiful vegetables. And it was like, sometimes I find tasting menus a little bit sterile and a bit pretentious, but this was just like, it was so humbling. And some of the plating was so beautiful and just not, like not the way that I would ever plate or anything, plate anything or see how things would be plated here, but, you know, tiny little sauces here and there. And like, you could tell that they just yeah, had so much pride in it. So, so I have the first few courses and even just the wines that they were bringing out was so incredible. They, the glassware, like they had lots of different glassware, Zalto, Riedel, all different shapes and sizes. They were bringing out every olive oil that was um, garnished, the di- had garnished the dish and then Maria came out and sat with me and she sat across from me and obviously we couldn't speak. And she just sat there and watched me eat the food that she had prepared. And it was just like this amazing connection. And like every time I had a bite, she was like looking for validation or like, you know, to see how I was enjoying it. And um, and then, yeah, like then she went back to the kitchen and dessert came out. I reckon there was like 12 different little desserts. And um, before I spoke to you this morning, I um, was having a look through my phone at the photos and the videos and everything. And luckily the um, front of house staff, one of the girls could speak English so she could um, describe the dishes to me. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it was just, it was so beautiful and so memorable. And it was, you know, it kind of, I had a few amazing experiences of Southern hospitality when I was in the US and it just felt like that. Like they had, was like so excited that I was there and had bent over backwards. And it was, yeah, it was very, very special. So I think that's probably the top of my travelling meals.
1: You had quite a, a food epiphany in your time back in Australia and 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 changed your approach to cooking. But did that experience uh, that you just shared with us, did, did that have an impact on that direction that you went in?
0: I think even though um, I said, you know, how – Um, the uh, attention to detail in their plating and things like that. It was ultimately about simplicity and they hadn't really overcomplicated anything. All the ingredients were obviously local. And also what I found interesting in Puglia and in the south of Italy was that I went to all these different markets. I've sniffed out the farmer's market in every town and there was not really – that many different varieties of each ingredient you know you go to the um, green market in times in uh, union square in new york and there's 50 different types of tomatoes and six different types of eggplants and things like that and i was kind of surprised that you know you would go you w- We were in italy and there was really only one or two different types of tomatoes or one type of eggplant and, but it didn't they didn't need to be anything else and the flavor in them so pure um that there's no point complicating it, planting so many different varieties. Um, And that's what I think, yeah, I'm all, I always keep getting drawn back to simplicity and I think it's just, yeah, it it makes sense because also they were only using what they had access to. If there was more on the plate, then they would have been sourcing from elsewhere. So just be true to the area that you're from and, and use what's in abundance and it's, always going to taste delicious.
1: You touched on the US just a, just a little bit. You spent quite a lot of time there and made a, a huge impact in the, in the US. Do you have a story or two from, from your experiences there?
0: Um, <laughs> you thought we want to on the spot here a bit hard? I think um, uh, <clears throat> probably a funny story or a few funny stories. Um, the one thing that I found really hard to source in the US was a leg of ham, and I, I, I often needed to, to find them. Um, and because I guess it's not really a traditional thing to do over there, but I was cooking a lot for Australians. And so, like, I wanted to source one at Thanksgiving and at Christmas and at Easter. And the first time I tried to call around asking butchers all over LA, they just didn't understand. They're like, do you want a shoulder of pork? And I was like, N- no, no, I want a leg of ham. <laughs> and they're like, oh, we can give you a leg of pork. And I was like, no, no, like it, it needs to be Brian, cu- like cured ha- ham. And they just didn't understand. Like, okay, well, if I get it in, do you want to cure it? And I'm like, no, I just. So then I'm doing all these different research, um, like going to the butchers, seeing like if I can point at anything. Maybe it's called a different name, um, and then finally. Um, Italy had just recently opened in the Westfield um, in LA and so I was getting a lot of seafood from there and um so I went to their butcher and I was like I do, like do you know what do you know what a leg of ham is and like this is wild asking a butcher if they know what a leg of ham is and um and so I spoke to this kid and I'm like he's like yeah I think I know what you mean and I was like all right great can you order one in like I'm really cutting it fine I need it within three days and, um, and so, cause they also do like spiral ham over there and it's just like a little bit of the leg and then they put it through this machine and it cuts it, um, it spirals it along, but doesn't go all the way to the bone. So it still holds together, but then it's already sliced, but so you can't glaze that and it dries out. So yeah, I'm like no spiral whole thing. I want the skin still on. And, um, and so he's like, yeah, I like, I've got you. So I'm, I'm freaking out, you know, it's the day before Thanksgiving. I was like, if I don't have this ham, I'm going to be in big trouble. So I um, went to pick it up and it was the most amazing leg of ham. It was massive and like the most beautiful shape. And he was like, oh, um, I don't really know how to charge you for it. And I was like, oh, well, like, you know, like, just do it by the weight, like whatever, whatever it is by the the pound over there, by the pound and charge it out. And he brought over the machine and he charged me like $60. (laughs) And I was like, I was like, are you sure that that's very cheap? And he was like, "Uh, to be honest, I've got no idea what's going on. Like, let's just keep this between you and I. And it was the best ham I've ever done. I glazed, baked it, glazed it. Everyone said it was the best ham they've ever had. And, um, and so luckily I could, give, I could give them the story that went with it. And I think that made it taste even better. But, yeah, all, all of it, like all over America, all the times I tried to get ham, that was a real struggle. So um, I guess that's a bit of a, a festive story for you.
1: Well, it's summer at the moment. Do you have any favourite uh, foods uh, in Australia that you like to sort of celebrate during summer?
0: Yeah, so um, another dish going back to New York, um, the second restaurant I worked at in New York was called Navy in Soho and um, it was a seafood and vegetable-driven restaurant and there was this dish on the menu, it was called mussel Toast and the first time I had like uh, I took one bar and I had to close my eyes to eat the rest of it. It was just I, I couldn't even get over the flavours. It's like umami and like salty and like oceanic and like anyway. So I um, anytime people came to visit me at the restaurant and I'd say you have to have the mussel toast, well, like th- their life was changed as well. So the first time I ever came back to Australia um, after that, my mum was like to me, you have to make the muscle toast. <laughs> Told everyone about it, you have to make it. And I made it and, like, she invited, like, half of <clears throat> Point Lonsdale to come and try the muscle toast. So then, then any time I went home, everyone always made me make the muscle toast. Um And so now it's something that I love to do in the summertime because it is um, a bit of an act of love to make. There's a few different um, steps along the way, but essentially, so you just get really beautiful sourdough um, and it's best if that's grilled on like a a fire. So if you crank the hibachi, it's fine on the barbecue, but hibachi is even better. Um, And then... You make an aioli and it's an aji caper aioli. So, aji is a yellow Peruvian chili um, and you can get it in paste form from cassia birica. Um, It's it's delicious. It's, like, quite acidic. It's not too spicy, so it's... um, a really nice balance in the in the mayo in the aioli, and then so you blitz some capers and then make him make your aioli. You can do store bought mayo if you want, but I prefer to make it. And then um, and add the the chili paste. Then you to cook the mussels, you saute first um, fennel and lemon, and then you add the mussels in and you deglaze that with a dry white wine, just like I don't know quarter of a bottle and um, put the lid on, let the mussels start, just start to open and then kill the heat because then you, you're you going to pick the mussels so you don't want them to overcook them. So you pick the mussels and then you reserve the cooking liquid, um, strain that off from the fennel and the lemon <laughs> and then, um, then you just do a few mixed herbs on the side that you're going to garnish it with. So spring onion, chives and parsley. So then, when you're ready to actually <laughs> execute it, you get your toast on. You've got your mussels in a small pot in the cooking liquid, and then um, to assemble it, aioli on the toast, and then with a slotted spoon, um, you mount the mussels onto the aioli and toast. Sorry, you've already you've thrown in the mixed herbs by this stage, so they're wilting a bit in the beautiful liquid and then um just finish it with olive oil and like a little bit of chili flakes and it's it's magic (laughs) so that's that's my favorite thing to cook in the summer and i love going down to port arlington and getting the mussels fresh from the boat um, picking the herbs from the garden and yeah it's it it tastes like summer
1: as we mentioned at the top of the show, you sort of very well travelled and cooked all over the world. Tell us about your cooking now, and sort of, um, and what you are up to, and, and that big shift that you you had in regards to your food. How, how is that manifesting?
0: Um, yeah, I it's I love it because it's the only way I like I can cook now. I think. I went. The way I used to cook in the past was very um, much driven by tastes and textures and things that I had on my mind. But now it, it's my purpose to cook local food um, and to cook it with intention and be mindful of where it's come from and, and make sure that I'm not wasting anything and to be grateful for the people who have produced it and the food miles it's taken to travel and so it is. It's it's such a joy to cook with because you know you you have you value it so much and appreciate it so much. So um, on the weekend, I was down the beach, and I love going down there and, and sourcing whatever I can from the locals. So there's a, a boat down at the marina, and I went down to get some fish, and they were like, "Well, actually, there's a boat out at the moment. Why don't you come back in an hour?" And it will literally be fresh caught. And so went back and got the most amazing snapper that had literally been caught 30 minutes prior. And then um, I went to the Torquay Farmers Market and saw the guys from Kinfolk Farm who are just producing the most incredible produce and, um, and just got whatever looks good. There's some really exciting things. Um, that are being plucked from the ground at the moment, like green garlic, fresh garlic, um, and got the garlic scapes that grow um, the shoots from the garlic and just like the most beautiful carrots that survive the winter. And that's like just my favourite way to cook. And, and then you just kind of compile it all. And so um, I did this, yeah, um, really delicious snapper dish with scallops as well. Beautiful braised fennel and potatoes, and like, oh you know, I, I want to know where the food comes from that I'm eating, and I want to know how it's been grown, and and to make sure that it's not doing any damage to the environment, it's only making it better. So I think, yeah, I just I'm really finding my feet in in how I like to cook now, and it's not um, it's not driven by creating menus and things. It's just driven by the produce and what I can get access to. And the menu just comes from there.
1: It's been a curly couple of years. Um, what are you looking forward to in the year ahead?
0: Oh, <laughs> I don't know. With the price of, uh, of um, power going up, price of produce going up, stuff getting harder to find, um, no, there's a lot to look forward to but at the same time. Um, it... Well, we are were, we were really lucky. We just did a round of hiring, and we had—I uh, put out a post just on Instagram, and I had over thirty people apply within forty-eight hours. And you know, I think I'm—I um, felt really proud at that because I—I uh, am always trying to create the best possible working environment. And um, a lot of that has to do with the food and and respecting and honoring the food and the environment. And then also in turn, the environment that you work in and making sure that that's sustainable for everyone to work in. So um, that was a really good sign. But I think I'm really excited um, in the near future to see how people are reducing their food waste because it's kind of come from pressure ultimately Obviously, there's people who are interested and want to do it, but there's too much pressure on the bottom line now that we can't be throwing food out. Um, And so I think, you know, it's an exciting time for chefs to really look at the whole ingredient and to see how much more they can be utilising and get a greater yield. And um, then that means also that like they're pushing themselves and their boundaries and experimenting with things and whether it's fermentation or even just you know being able to cook more of of that ingredient that you hadn't yet been whether it's blanching or roasting and or making sauces and um, and dressings and you know using all your herb stalks and things like that so um, I'm really excited that I I think that it's going to create a really nice community within the industry in the next 12 months or so because it is it is kind of a new space unfortunately like chefs have been known to waste food for so long um kitchens that I've been in in the past I was horrified to see what was being thrown out just to get that perfect dice or you know the perfect peel or something like that so um, we all kind of need to band together and share ideas and, and, um, like there's a lot of mistakes that get made, especially in fermentation. So, um, the more our community can c- communicate with each other, the more we're going to keep learning. And I think that's a really exciting space.
1: Well, Frankie, you're a bloody inspiration and, and always, uh, such a pleasure to catch up with you. You always got an interesting yarn to share. <laughs>
0: <Full> <laughs> um, stories. Yep.
1: Um, Please keep in touch and um, we'll catch up again soon.
0: Sounds good. Have a great holiday.
1: This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au Stay safe and be well.